Hi, I'm Derek Jensen. This is Resistance Radio on the Progressive Radio Network. My guest today is Dina Metzger. She's a writer and feminist and ecological thinker. She's published over 19 books, has been teaching writing for over 50 years. La Negra y Blanca won the Oakland Penn Literature Award. Her penultimate novel, A Reign of Nightbirds, focuses on two climatologists, one native, who confront what they know and what they learn from the land and the cosmos. An earlier novel, uh, The Other Hand, is an epistolary novel addressed to Cardinal Lustiger by the protagonist, a cosmologist who states that the Holocaust and the bomb are the two Cohens of the 20th century. In La Vieja, a journal of fire, her latest novel, which is great, by the way, La Vieja takes up residence in a fire lookout in the Sierras, watching for fires and crossing the borders between time and space, human and animal. She originated, she, Dina, originated the genre, the literature of restoration, to promote spirit-based, earth-based writing free of the seeds of extinction and climate collapse. She lives at the end of the road in the Santa Monica Mountains with coyote, bobcat, mountain lion, squirrel, owl, raven, and more on land she and the community have designated as a sanctuary for all beings. She regularly meets with African elephants in the wild. Her website is d-e-e-n-a-m-e-t-z-g-e-r.net, So first off, thank you for your decades of wonderful work. And second, thank you for being in the program. Well, my great pleasure. Uh, to be with you and to speak with you again. So let's let's start with the question of what is the literature of restoration. Well, you know it's it's kind of um, common when you're studying literature in the conventional university, let's say, or if you're writing a screenplay, let's say, that you will be asked immediately what's the conflict. And so conventional literature has conflict, tension, um, other kinds of ways of being and thinking that have led us to the place where we are now. So I began to think of what kinds of literature might we develop that by its form, not only its content, but by its form, by the language used, would lead the culture to one that um, lives differently on the earth and in relationship to the other beings. So that's essentially it, looking and, and calling forth that kind of writing, which instead of looking for conflict and being excited by conflict, is really interested in exploring the complexity and beauty and presence in the natural world of relationship. Oh, so, so I know that the answer to the next question I'm going to ask, you know, takes 19 books to explore. <laughs> but um, what does that what does that look like in terms of the different? What, what a, OK, I'm, I'm thinking a couple things. I'm going to ask three questions and you can answer whichever one you want. There's that question. There's something that has always bothered me about movies and books, novels is that I think they make relationships more contentious than they really are. So if you have in a in a movie, if you have an activist, the activist partner always has to be threatened by their activism so that uh, you can have some conflict, so you can drive tension through the through the 
the movie. And I think that that gives people a false sense of what relationships are like. And then the third thing, and once again, you can take any of these any direction, is that I remember reading decades ago, some fairly famous writer was talking about how in most of our literature, the landscape is a landscape and it's a backdrop. It's like the, it's like the theater set for the theater where the main actors are the humans. And I remember when I read that, just thinking, what would a literature look like where the land itself is a character and the non-humans are characters and not merely backdrop? So I'm, I'm guessing that all of these things somehow fit into the stew that you're talking about, but, but can you help me understand how? Absolutely. A literature in which the land is a character because it is, it is part of, of our life every single moment. Uh, a literature that looks like that is the literature of restoration. Uh, it restores the relationship, the right relationship, the appropriate, the necessary relationship for our survival between humans who have, or, or Western or imperialist humans or settler humans who have set, separated themselves from the natural world and let's say indigenous literature um, in, in which the natural world is present all the time. Um, a character, but more than a character. Um, I, and also, I think about this latest book uh, that I've written, which I didn't write deliberately to write a literature restoration book. But if I look at it, that's what it is. Um, this is about what what the net the reality of the natural world and an attempt by a woman to discover the right relationship with it as she also watches to see how we set the fires that we set. And she's in a fire lookout um, where she's literally watching for fires, but she's also looking intellectually and spiritually and historically to try to understand how we have set these fires. Um, and it also explores the intelligence of the non-humans, the intelligence in this particular case of the bears who live in that place. And she is a neighbor to them. This is their home. That feels important. The natural world is at home in the natural world. We used to be at home there. And go ahead, please. Well, I was just thinking that there's a moment when she realizes that she needs to sincerely ask the beings of the natural world, the earth, for permission to enter into a relationship with them and that they will scrutinize us to see if we are sincere in wanting to live in right relationship. 
That reminds me of something that happened on this land here where I've lived for the last 22 years that um, when I moved in, it felt like land's like, yeah, he says that he likes, you know, us and he says he he likes it, but they, they weren't very trusting. And then uh, t- maybe a year or two in, a couple years in, there was I caught somebody cutting uh, parts of trees off to sell burls off of redwoods on this land. And I I escorted him off the land. And then I saw him again a couple days later doing the same thing. And I escorted him off. And then this happened three times until he stopped. And then the point is that um, the next few days, first I saw the biggest red-legged frog that I had seen to that point. Second, this all happened within a couple days. Second, I saw the biggest pile of pile of bear poop that I'd seen, and mm. I now see bears just like every day. And then the third thing that happened, which was one that finally I got something had changed, was I was walking through the forest and a bird flew out of the underbrush and brushed my chest with its wing. Mm. And my point is that, and I don't mean to eat either A, get too simple, or B, get too sort of woo-woo, but it was so clear to me that this happened, you know, in response to me having done physical things to protect the land. And they know that you did it. That what, that's what feels important about it, that they really know. And, you know, Derek, I'm a little impatient with people who are concerned about being woo-woo uh, <laughs> because I'm much more impatient with people who are unaware and skeptical of the relationship that is possible with the natural world and inevitable if we pay attention and are respectful. Well, that's that's one of the things that I absolutely love about La Vieja and, and all your work is how seamlessly you move from. I mean, I, I don't think I'm talking out of turn here to say that that after our exchange and setting up this this interview, you sent me a very powerful dream that you had last night in preparation if that's the right word for the interviewer in response to this upcoming interview and how seamlessly your work goes from the tangible to the uh luminous whatever word is that we should use for the numinous i think is the word and um goes from uh fiction to non-fiction and goes from uh you know you seamlessly um uh I don't want to say straddle the line because that implies a line, but but help me out here. Um, it, it's but but it's, it's it's wonderful what you do with that, and I think it's also wonderfully important. Well, I don't know how I came to it. You know, clearly I was born into the culture. I was born in Brooklyn, went to school in Coney Island. I'm saying that because that has a certain quality. Uh, of being to it and it's very human centered but somehow I was open to seeing what I think is the real world where um, those so-called differences 
don't don't exist. So when I truly when I hear your story about having escorted this man and I want to note the kindness and respect even for this man that is implied. You escorted him off. You were firm. You did it three times. He understood. Um, but it's not violent. And that also feels very important. And the animal people saw this and understood and have the capacity to, um, to respond. And what we have to acquire is the ability to understand the various languages that they speak. They are very capable of understanding us, but we are, uh, <laughs> we're not developed enough as a species. We once were, indigenous people were, uh, but our dominant culture is not. So it was, um, I was very gratified and a little startled to be awakened in the middle of the night um, with a dream in which I was alarmed because it was suddenly obvious for some reason or other, which I don't know, that the fungi in the soil were in great danger on the earth, and we were in danger of losing um, plant life, which means for practical food. And I was called to a council, and in driving to this council, I could hear the person who had called the council or was hosting the council, who knew a great deal about food, I could hear him talking about this relationship, about about what was going on, about his concern. And in some way, it was a very mundane dream about driving somewhere and then having to get food, et cetera, et cetera. But what was so startling about the dream um, was that I could hear him speaking about this, I was completely concerned. And when I awakened, it was as if I had been breathing in, living in the environment of this incredible human tragedy. And as you know, from having written and therefore thought about forever, uh, Bright Green Lies, um, that we are at this horrific crisis and some of us understand it. And yet what I understood last night and why I felt it was preparatory and why I sent it to you was that the barrier between me as a human and understanding the crisis was completely removed. And I woke up in that profound knowing of how we cannot, under any circumstances, continue to live the lives that we have created. 
And I felt the tragedy of these beings, the fungi in this particular case, the fungi, the algae, the lichen, the bacteria upon which we depend so profoundly, and how endangered they are. And that all the beings of this world are endangered by the human species. I, it's beyond language, Derek. Yeah, I, I agree. And it's, um, you know, after all the books I've written about this, I still, I was having an exchange with a friend of mine the other day where he, um, he was going through that, that phase that we all go through where he is um and for him it was the monarch butterflies that that they are declared endangered and how it it really really struck him how how grave the the planetary danger is and it's i remember when i was a young activist i um i i went through this phase where i was just um, bursting into sobs several times a week. And a lot of my activist friends were saying, oh, Derek, just take some time off and, you know, the problems will still be here when you come back. And I knew that that wasn't really sufficient. And because I realized if you're not going to cry about the salmon, you know, what, 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 what is worth crying about? And I, I was, um, I, I one day was talking to a friend of mine, Jeanette Armstrong. She's an Okanagan Indian writer and activist. And I was saying, you know, this, this culture, unless it's stopped, it's going to kill everything on the planet, isn't it? And she said, yeah, it is. And I said that, you know, it hates everything, doesn't it? She said, yeah, it does. I said, and we're not going to make some great new glorious tomorrow, are we? And she said the best thing she could possibly say, which is, I've been waiting for you to say that. Mm-hmm. And the reason that was the best thing she could say is because it it didn't it wasn't like my 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 other friends saying oh you know just take a little time off and you'll you'll feel better instead it was acknowledging yeah of course you feel this way that is so great that you feel this way because that's you're facing reality and it hurts but you know it, i feel like we spend more time avoiding feeling the pain than we do actually just feeling the pain Yes. Um, you know, when people tell me that they're in a pain, that they're in pain and they can't bear it, you know, and I remember coming to my friend so many years ago, Barbara Meyerhoff, and I was upset about something. And I said to her, I can't bear it. And she looked at me and she said, who asked you? Who asked you if you could bear it or not? And... <laughs> Um, There are two realities we have to face, in my view. One is how dire the situation is because of our behavior. And the other is that the beings of the natural world are intelligent. They are persons. They are peoples. And those two, the, the... the terrible part of it and the awesome part of it, 
coexist and each requires us to change our minds. And I don't know if that'll save the planet or not or when or how. I only know that how are we live our lives now on a daily basis, particularly because of the relationship that we can have with the other beings is absolutely essential. Thank you so much for that. And um, I want to tell a quick story and then I want to ask you about those relationships. And the quick story is that um, before I wrote a language older than words in 1997, I spent, oh gosh, a year and a half trying to write that book, but it was going to be a completely different book. The book it was supposed to be was, or it was that I, I was originally trying to make it into is a better way to say it mm-hmm. is, was a, an exploration of are non-humans sentient and, and can people have conversations with non-humans? And I was trying to prove that non-humans are sentient by we can have, you know, this interaction with a, with a coyote, this interaction with a dog, this interaction with a tree. And I was going to assemble stories to show that non-humans are sentient. And suddenly it, it occurred to me, and the thing that blew the book open and changed it entirely and changed my entire life was to try to show that non-humans are sentient is still holding up humans as the standard by which everybody else is judged. And the question is not, are they or are they not able to communicate? The question is, can we or can we not hear? And and before you can exploit somebody, you have to silence them. And it blew, it, it, it changed everything about the rest of my life to yes. that, that shift in in understanding and focus. So first you want to respond to that. And then second, can you, can you give us some just anecdotes, not just anecdotes, cause they aren't just anecdotes, but can you give us some stories or anecdotes of, of your experiences with elephants, with bobcats, with anybody? I mean, I, there's, there's just so many beautiful stories that, that, <laughs> that are out there that are every day. Right. Well, you know, what I was thinking as I was preparing for this, and of course, your your book, Language Older Than Words, is is just such an essential book. And at the same time, maybe some years earlier or later, I don't remember exactly, I co-edited with Linda Hogan and Brenda Peterson, um, a book called Intimate Nature, Women's Bond with Animals. Oh, that's such a great book, by the way. Oh, <laughs> yes. And it pioneered in, in its niche um, the understanding that animals um, are intelligent, have intent, um are active in 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 the world, um, and there there are many 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 stories of animal intelligence in it. And I was thinking, just what you said. Oh, it's not that they're intelligent. Of course they are. <laughs> if we were capable, we would understand that. Um, 
but that they really do participate in in the world in very, very profound ways. Um, the first time that I really knew this um, was in the late 90s um, when I was in a in, in the forest at, at the base of the Mugian Rim and was taking a walk and stopped and there was a squirrel um, on the ground and it looked at me and I looked at it and it chattered and so I said hello and we went back and forth it went up the tree and down and came back and I would say something and it would chatter back and there was no question that we were communicating with each other took probably had half an hour the light began to go down and I had this moment of oh it's getting dark I better go home. And in that moment, it left. It read my mind in that moment. Um, that's a, a nice little story. The essential story that I would tell, um, from about 20 years of uh, having gone to Africa, possibly 12 times. Um, but in 1999, um, I had the idea that I wanted to sit in council with um, the elephants. And I was uh, friends at that particular time with a, a Nanga from Zimbabwe. And he said to me, well, what does that mean? And I said, I have no idea. Uh, so he laughed and he understood that. And um, he took me to Chobe which is uh, an extraordinary preserve with the largest number of wild animals in southern Africa and uh, of, of wild elephants in, in southern Africa. And we were five people. And we agreed that each one of us would have half a day where the others would follow whatever their instinct was. And this was the last day. And that was my day. And, um, we went into the park and I brought some grapefruits because elephants like citrus. And um, at one point, uh, Mandaza Kandemwa saw a um, fisher eagle, which is his totem animal, and it landed on a tree and that was it for Mandaza. We weren't going anywhere. We were staying with the fisher eagle, which later I understood was that the fisher eagle was directing us where to be. And I was in the back of the truck, in the open back of, of the truck. And all the way down, I saw an elephant. And it started walking toward us. And I had that feeling of excitement, disbelief, and terror when you know that there's a good chance you are going to meet the unbelievable, the incomprehensible. And it came to the truck, and it was as close to me as it could be if it wanted to wrap its trunk around my neck. And I put out my hands to show that I had no weapons. And we looked in each other's eyes for about 10 minutes 
And then he moved to another side of the truck and I moved and he moved behind me and I moved again. So we were looking in each other's eyes for at least half an hour, absolutely still. And then we had to leave the preserve or we would get locked in. And I felt that once again, time, I felt it. And he was gone in an instant. And we drove then out of the park um, very cautiously because now the elephants were coming down to the river and we were driving along the river. And we were very much afraid of coming between a female and her little ones. And... But we had to leave. And they lined up. This is a true story. (laughs) They lined up along the river for about a quarter of a mile. And they faced the road. They faced us as we drove by. And they bowed their heads and flapped their ears. And uh, the two women who were with me were now in the back of the truck with me. And we bowed to them as we left. So this was the last hour of the last day that we were in this park. And every time that I have gone back to Africa to be with the elephants, some narrative event that is clearly communication. It's like a little theater piece that indicates that we are in communication occurs. And it's always the last hour of the last day. Um, I can't explain it except to say that the elephants are choreographing this. They have intent and agency. There is no doubt about it. And I yield as best as I can. It's part of my uh, goal as a human being to learn to truly yield to the other's intelligence. Well, thank you for I uh, thank you for the story and thank you for the word yield. And I'm I'm thinking also about the the end of those two interactions with the I know this is off the main point, but the end of the interaction with the squirrel and the end of the interaction with the first elephant are with a a recognition that time is short. And not like in a cosmic time is short or, you know, the world's being killed sort of time is short. But right. I'm, I'm thinking of the line that has always stuck with me from, do you remember those, uh, fantasy romance novels by Mary Stewart back in the seventies, the, the Merlin series or the King Arthur series? And there was one line in one of them that I read when I was a teenager that has always stuck with me, which was the God will not speak to those who have no time to listen. Uh huh. And, it's just, you know, it's so easy. And 
I'm not attacking anybody here because I do it myself all the time. It's so easy to be in such a hurry that, oh, it's just another stupid squirrel or <laughs> and but but there's this. OK, I'm going to go a different direction. Well, it's the same direction, but a different person. Mm-hmm. Joseph Campbell had this great line about people of all times until the present have known that to have anything approaching a spiritual life, the first requirement was leisure. And I would substitute the word time for leisure, mm-hmm. that there's a whole different – you can't – if you're not taking the time to pay attention, you, you – if one is not pay, taking time to pay attention, one will not uh, – I mean, it's true with humans too. You know, it's like if 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 – if you and I are sitting in the same room or if you're if you're sitting in a room and you say, hey, Derek, I want to tell you the dream I had. And I'm like, hey, sorry, I got to go into town. Uh, I'll, I'll catch you later. I'm going to go get in the car. You know, we're, we're not going to communicate as much as if I say, OK, tell me the dream. It's just that all of these all I'm saying, and I should have just said this in the first place and shut up, is that relationships take time. <laughs> well, what happened for me is in telling these two stories which I don't know that I've told before together, I got it that both those events had been cut short. I mean, I just got at this moment talking with you that both those events were cut short by my sense of what time required me to do. And it's a very human-centered concern. One, perhaps with the elephant, was more real. Um, we could get locked in. That could be dangerous, um, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, no food, shelter, et cetera, in the wild. But the first time with the squirrel, no. I could have continued to pay attention. You use the word attention, and I think that's what's very important in every aspect, as you point out. The need to pay attention, to give attention to the other. Well, this is going to kind of take us back to La Vieja because two things. One is I remember reading a book about creativity, I think it was, and they had a quote by Tom Waits about how He'll be driving down the road and a song will come to him and it's like, I got to pull over because if I don't stop and write it down, what he says is that the song will choose someone else. Uh And and also, I just want to put in here that this doesn't mean that we have to attend at every moment. I, I have absolutely no doubt that there are, you know, bears having conversations with each other that all of a sudden, if. (laughs) <laughs> or, you know, something else shows up. If something comes up, they have to go attend to it. It's not like everybody is sitting around contemplating 24 hours a day. Um, so it, it is – and I, I want to say this in terms of of people also shouldn't beat themselves up because, well, I don't have – I don't actually have time for this conversation right now. That that's, that also can happen. But anyway, back to the – back to, to you and to La Vieja, you said that, that the, the – um, the book and the the character presented herself to you. I mean, it wasn't like you made you made uh, the first the first line of the preface. La Vieja first appeared to me in October 2017, the way characters do 
suddenly a complete stranger, seemingly fully formed, if obscure. And um, that's, it's not like, it, I want to note a couple things. One is that, and then you had to take the time to develop that relationship. But the other also is that the humility that is there of, I'm, I don't very often talk about, I wrote this book. I, I give credit to the muse. I say the book came to me. The mm-hmm. words came to me. It's, it's not. And this, I think, is, is an absolute. It suddenly it occurs to me that I think it was Neil Everenden who said this or somebody said this that, that really struck me, which is instead of perceiving, no, this is Albrecht Durer, that, that art is inherent in the world and it's not that you create it. And it's the same. This is, I'm saying this very poorly, but the, 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 it's a huge shift in worldview as to whether the world has no meaning inherent in it and you must create all that meaning yourself or whether there is meaning inherent everywhere and it's merely, it, it merely is up to us to notice it. And to develop the capacity to understand it. Um, yes. And, and before we have the capacity to understand it, we have to also accept that it exists. Right. And it could be beyond us. Imagine that we are not the most intelligent or developed creatures in the world and that we, our intelligence is of this sort and their intelligence is of another sort. And there's no hierarchy here. I think that feels very important. And also, um, I live a spirit-based life. So for me, um, the world is is spirit-based, and I am grateful to be guided when I have the ability to listen uh, deeply enough and pay attention and take the time. Um all of those, you know that that when um, when the clock came in, when the timepiece came in, when the church bells started announcing uh, the hours, rather than people watching the weather, um, watching the light, watching the plants and the animals, that made a big and terrible difference in human life. Yes, yes. And maybe I, I shouldn't have said you know, but I think you do. No, 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 I, I do. I'm, I'm, I'm going a few directions with that. One of them is that, you know, my mom died a few years ago. And one of the things that, that, that we used to do is we, we'd be hanging out. And sometimes it just made me laugh. I just, I, I found it kind of adorable, if, if also silly, is um, she would sometimes uh, click to a special weather channel that she really liked looking at to see what the temperature is. And I was like, <laughs> mom, go outside. Um, and anyway, so that's one thing. Another thing is, um, oh shoot. I can't remember my other question. Oh yeah. That, that memory makes me think of one of the questions. I know this was off your main point, but you're talking about different intelligences. <clears throat> and I read somewhere a, a few years ago that 
basically when you have squirrels and oak trees, it works out pretty well that one squirrel uh, will can more or less take the acorns from one tree. And it that's not the important thing. The important thing is that they hide or they cache mm-hmm. um, basically all of these acorns, and they remember where about three-quarters of them are. You can look at it a different way, that they are planting 25% of the acorns for future oaks and eating you know, the other three-quarters. You can look at either memory or not. But the point that cracks me up is that they plant thousands of acorns, and they remember where three-quarters of them are. And the truth is, if I don't put my keys in the same place every day, I lose them. <laughs> so there's completely different forms of intelligence that, you know, I may be able to, I don't know what I can do that squirrels can't, but I'm sure there's something. And, but I sure can't remember the way they can. And same with woodpeckers. The woodpeckers have extraordinary memories. Um, and so it just, it always, I, I, I love sort of contemplating the, uh, just the vastly different intelligences that there are based on also based on their different senses, how different the world would, would be to a bear whose sense of smell is like 10 times better than that of a dog. And just how that would of course change how you perceive everything in the entire world. It's just it. Oh, and one more thing. I, I know we're, we're getting off topic again, but so far as there is an off topic, but it, it bothers me so much when I just read this again the other day where some astronomer is saying that we have to explore outer space to see if we're all alone in the universe. It's like, how can you even ask if we're all alone in the universe when you have neighbors sitting, you know, 10 feet away from you who are trying to talk to you and you're saying, oh, they're just stupid squirrels? Yes. Well, <laughs> oh. Where do we go? <laughs> well, one 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 other thing I wanted to to bring up that you're that you're saying is you talked about a life based on spirit, and I I I love that, and I I I try to follow that as well. And then I'm wondering where something fits in that I think it was Vine Deloria said to me years ago that he said that one of the um, you know, you have sort of different roles at different ages. And one of the roles when you're, when you're older is when you're, you know, you're not so physically fit and capable of doing the tasks that you were when you, that you did when you were younger. But what you have now is, he said, time to reflect upon the patterns that you have noticed and experienced in your lifetime. And then part of your job is to attempt to articulate those for the younger people. But I'm I'm thinking about the relationship between and I'm just throwing this out and I have no idea what the answer is, if there is one, is what is the relationship between living a spirit based life and perceiving patterns? Do you have any idea what I'm trying to ask? Yes. I don't. Uh, uh, um Perceiving patterns seems to me very much how I also live and developing that over time. It take, it, it, it takes a while. Um, but I think where I'd like to go is that, uh, somewhere in, in the book, actually in the beginning of the book, um, 
question is asked, what does an old woman do at the end of her life? And in some way, uh, writing La Vieja was the answer uh, to that. But I've written it. And, you know, here I am. I'm still working like I always was, like a 30-year-old. But nevertheless, I am older. And um, and I do wonder, after these years of experience um, and relationship with so many ways of, of knowing or being, um, what what is my task now? And which way should I be looking? Is my task in relationship to the humans or is my task and focus and attention in relationship to spirit or to the non-humans? Um, so patterns, you know, you keep saying we're off topic, but actually we're just finding the pattern, the relationship, right, between everything that that we're talking about. And um, I think what this conversation is, is looking for a pattern of relationship. You know, uh, I'm going to either go off the deep end or go back to the beginning. You and I met um, so many years ago. I think it was at Bioneers. And... Um, you spoke of the salmon. And I never forgot that. That the way you spoke about the salmon and therefore your relationship, the pattern of your relationship with salmon and non-human beings uh, was an essential understanding of the nature of the world. For me. I know that this has been both your and my, one of both of your and my life goals, but how do we help to convey that to people listening to this interview or people in general? How do we, how do we uh, convey I mean, this goes back to the question of what do we do when the world is on fire and how do we how do we convey? How do we help other people to slow down long enough to um, experience even the possibility of a communication with a squirrel or an elephant or a dug fir tree? You know, what comes to mind is that I was once um, I was once giving a talk at, at a university um, and some group had had invited me and there were two chaplains there as well. And I told the story of the elephants and I asked the people, the young people, if they had ever had any such experiences and of course you're not supposed to have such experiences and they're frightening when they happen and so they're they're put away and I just sat 
in silence for a really long time. And then one of the chaplains spoke, and her mother had just died, and she spoke about a bird that came to the windowsill. And she looked around. She was afraid, but she took the chance, and she said, that bird was my mother. And then the other chaplain spoke. And then almost everyone spoke. So one of the things I think we have to do is to make a really safe place for people to speak what is not permitted in the culture. And let what they deeply know come true because it isn't about learning it because we say we've had that experience. It's about recognizing, you're saying, creating a situation where they can recognize that they can have it. And I'm saying also creating a situation where they can, are willing to remember that they have had these experiences, if only as children, where the the natural world speaks to us when we are children, if our parents allow us to be outside these days. Um, I think we might know and we need to be held in remembering. So that would be a beautiful place to end, but I'm not going to. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I have a couple questions left. One of them is you've, told so the the elephant story is is incredibly moving and cosmic and grand and i think in addition these these interactions that we can have with non-humans are not only grand and and huge but they can also i think be and they should be absolutely mundane and everyday and can you, if you were to put me on the spot, I don't know if I could come up with one immediately. I, I could probably come up with one if I think about it for a few minutes. But if you can think of a story of some sort of absolutely mundane uh, communication with, and I'm especially thinking about where you live with coyote, bobcat, mountain lion, squirrel, owl, raven, some some neighbor you have could be spider, you know, just well, raven uh, is raven and owl. Uh, Raven is always here. Um, we've had many occasions where the community has gathered and, uh, Golden Eagle has come and, uh, and, and circled. Um, once in particular, we had someone here who was here from, uh, Peru where condor is, um, the eagle and the condor, uh, the sort of the American spirit and the, uh, Latin American, South American spirit. Um, and, uh, Eagle comes very rarely, but as she was in a, as she was chanting, um, Eagle came. Uh, but you know, the people who are listening, they probably have dogs or cats. And these are very intelligent, 
creatures who take care of us, it seems to me, as much as we take care of them and communicate to us if we are able to uh, understand what they're saying. Well, just really basically, if the water dish is empty, they look at the water dish, look at you, look at the water dish. I mean, that's that's a language right there. I mean, <laughs> right. <laughs> Absolutely. Right. Yeah. So um, how can people. Uh, oh, God, this is a terrible question. Um, so if you if a couple questions. Uh, so closing up about your work. Um one is, and I get this once in a while too myself, and it always makes me a little uncomfortable. So if somebody doesn't know your work yet, what book would you recommend that they start with of your books? And second, uh, I mean, I, I love La Vieja and is, is A, is that the one you'd recommend they start with? But in any case, how do they learn more about your work and how do they, how do they pick up either this book or the one you're going to recommend for the, uh, sort of intro to Dina Metzger? Well, um, I would say that they may as well start with La Vieja because it's the one that's, you know, that we're excited about now. And um, also, but if they're interested in my thinking and how I got here, um, they could read um, Entering the Ghost River, um, which is a book that I wrote because of 9-11 and we brought it out on 9-11-2002. So that would be it. If they go to my website, they will come on many essays that I've written. They can also go to Substack where I've started writing. But on my website, they will also read about Dari, which is a monthly gathering on the first Sunday after the new moon. And now because of the pandemic on Zoom, which is also good for people who don't live locally. And it's a monthly gathering of, of the community on behalf of healing in the deepest possible way. And it's free. And we'd love to meet them and have them join the community in that way. And so to find out about that, they go to, I'm sorry, do they go to the Substack for that or do they go to the dinametzger.net for that? dinametzger.net and Dare is spelt D-A-R uh, with an accent over the E. Dare means council in the Shona language of Southern Africa. Well, thank you so much for all of this and thank you for your fabulous work and for for everything you do. And I would like to thank listeners for listening. My guest today has been Dina Metzger. This is Derek Chenton for Resistance Radio on the Progressive Radio Network.